Hey guys, Tim here. I just want to let you know that this will be part one of a two-part series. Had to split it up. It went over two hours with Joel. It's an awesome episode, so I hope you enjoy. So let's tune right into part one of Joel from Fortress Canine talking all about protection dogs. Coming at you from East Central Alberta, Canada. Streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, Float, Odyssey, Telegram, and the Prepper Broadcast Network. Welcome back to the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. I am Toolman Tim, and today is August 27th, 2022, and this is episode 161 of the workshop podcast. It's going to be a good one tonight. In just about two minutes, we'll have Joel on. We're going to talk all about dogs and puppies and why my dogs are bad dogs and hopefully he can help me with that but anyway that's another story for another night real quick we'll get the announcements out patch of the month club you guys have heard me beat this it's a dead horse but this is the way to support the workshop but if you want to make sure that you get in on the ground level and get the very first inaugural patch shipped out to you get signed up by september 5th patch of the month.co that's the way to go uh and coming up on friday at 11 a.m we got a really special guest, William Fortune. He's coming on, the author of One Second After. Uh, it's a pretty big get for the workshop. I'm rather excited. And he is going to be on Friday, 11 a.m. Mountain Time, which is going to be great. Really excited. Can't wait. And today's tool is the... So I, I did a segment for Jack on the Expert Council on Friday about the Go V freezer alarm. I have had probably six or seven emails about that since. So if you're interested, I put the link in the description and in the podcast feed so you will see it. So if anybody's looking for it, that is today's tool. So without further ado, let's bring Joel on. Hey, Joel, how are you, bud? I'm doing great. How are you doing tonight? Very, very good, actually. Yeah, I just got back from, uh, we did a little three-day vacation away with the fam. So that was fun. And I come home like a chicken with my head cut off and got everything put together with about five minutes to spare so <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my life I, I tell my wife all the time you never run out of things to do so don't stress that there's always more to do <laughs> ain't that the truth yes when you don't have anything more to do you're in trouble hey yes <clears throat> so who is joel we uh I, i've been wanting to have you on for a while i'm pretty excited uh if you follow me for any length of time, you'll know I'm a dog guy, but my dogs are a little smaller than yours. Uh, we, we have six chihuahuas, but anyway, that's a, <laughs> but yeah, tell, tell me about, well, I know a little bit about you, but tell the workshop all about you, Joel. Where'd you come from? What was your first high school job? That's always my favorite. So, uh, yeah. Well, coming out of high school, I actually uh, was a bus boy at Bennigan's, which I think they went out of business because I haven't seen one in a long time, but they were kind of like an Irish pub kind of a feel. Mm -hmm. And they had this thing where you could get like a tray of like 20. They were basically shot glasses with different beers in them. And then you could <laughs> sample them and then pick the ones you wanted. And they had all these beers on tap. And uh, so I did that for a little while. Uh, did a couple other little jobs. Um, I just found out I'm a terrible employee. Mm. Uh, but I went to work or I went to college and I was going through college. And I was like, you know, this thing I'm getting this degree in in college, I have zero interest in doing. Like, I was What'd just. You take? I was so I started off in physics, which I actually loved, and I was I'm very math oriented, like calculus and stuff like that is fun for me. Yep. But I walked into my first calculus class in college, and the professor walked in and said, "Read chapters one through five, do all the homework. I'll see you tomorrow." And walked out. And I oh. said, "Why am I paying to read a book and do it myself?" And so I got up, I walked down to the the office, I canceled those classes, and I changed my major, and uh, I was undetermined, I guess, for a little while and then decided to go education um, because I like physical stuff. I had been racing for years, triathlon and stuff like that. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a PE teacher. And it just shows you how little I knew about what I wanted to do in life that I'd go from possibly doing physics to doing PE. But uh, two years in, I'm walking across campus and I look up and see the ROTC building. Mm. And I was like, I always wanted to be in the army when I was younger. And my parents kind of beat it out of me like, oh, no, that's scary. You don't want to do that. So I kind of was like, okay, fine. I guess I won't do it. And then I'm walking across this campus. I see the RTC building. I walk inside, talk to a, a master sergeant, coolest guy I ever met. And uh, he was like, well, here's the reality of being in the army. And I'm like, well, that's exactly what I want to do. And he's like, well, you can sign here. 
and we'll send you to basic training in two weeks. And I was like, <laughs> done. So I uh, was going in as an officer, but still because I didn't do my first two years in ROTC, had to do basic training to kind of catch up. And then I did my final two years of ROTC, commissioned as an officer, uh, went in MP Corps, uh, which I chose because I thought I would deploy less. And uh, found out no MPs deploy more than just about any other branch. Uh, because when you're not deploying with a unit, you're deploying individually or doing various different things that you're kind of tasked out for. So did that for total between active and National Guard and Reserves, about 14 years. Um, and then I was back on active duty and it was time for me to leave a duty station. And I was finally a major at this point in the Army, right? And they were like, hey, when you make major, you actually get to start picking your locations that you go to. Like they give you some choices and you go, I want that one. And then you get to go where you want. So I was like all excited. I called Branch and I said, hey, I was just like looking for the, the options that we had. I know I'm going to be PCSing soon. That's permanent change of station moving to another place. Okay. And, uh, and so they sent me this list of like 16 places and they said, put your top three choices in. So we, I actually picked... Uh, Germany, I'd never been, you know, overseas. So I picked Germany. I mean, I'd been deployed, but never like stationed over there. I picked, um, they actually had a Saudi Arabia for one year accompanied. I was like, that would be a, a great, um, like cultural experience for the children. So if I can bring my yeah. family, I'll do that. And I can't remember what the third one was. So, you know, a couple of weeks go by and they come back and they're like, you're going to Kuwait for a year unaccompanied. And I was like, uh, okay. So I found out, I can't remember how I did this, but I found out the guy who got the Saudi Arabia assignment and I contacted him and he was like, I don't want to go there. He's like, I'd rather go to Kuwait for a year. I'm like, well, I want to go where you're going for a year. So we both call branch and they go, yeah, no, we're not moving you. And I went, okay, well, in that case, the needs of the army and which I understand and the needs of me have gotten too far apart Bye. and I dropped my paperwork and got out and never looked back. So I uh, did that. And then I tried to do the the civilian thing for a while, right? The uh, I was a security guard. At, actually, the the Noah's Ark in uh, yeah. Kentucky. Um, pretty cool place if you've never been. It's really cool. It's awesome. Um, but I did security there for a little while. I did uh, a National Guard uh, AGR, but it like I understand now why the active duty calls them nasty girls um, because they're really not the army. <laughs> they're a bunch of administrators. Um, like your soldiers that do the weekend thing, they do a lot more of that type of training, but the okay. function, the day-to-day -day function all through the week and everything, it's just one gigantic business. It's, it runs just like any other bureaucracy. And I was the guy in the army that my bosses always loved and hated at the same time, because if they gave me an assignment, I would always get it done. But if they told yep. me to do something stupid, I would always say no. And, uh, and so, uh, like I had a soldier one time, we were supposed to get our flu vaccines, right? And I had a soldier who had just had a baby girl and they found a hole in her heart. And Ooh. in Alaska, they don't have the ability to do that surgery up there. So what they do is they ship you down to um, to Washington State where they have yep. much bigger medical facilities and they pay for all your travel down there and everything. And then you get the surgery done and then you come back. And uh, so he's down there with his like newborn daughter that just had open heart surgery and they're like, you need to call him and tell him to go get his flu shot at the nearest base, which is like an hour and a half drive for him each way. Right. And I was like, no, not doing it. And they're like, well, you're going to get in trouble if you don't. I'm like, then fire me. Like, if you don't like it, then you can fire me and put somebody else here that'll make him do that. And uh, my first sergeant's like, no, sir, you can't do that. I'm like, I'm not fucking making that soldier go leave his newborn daughter and go down there and do that. So I would it run into those kind of things quite frequently. And, but then anytime there was a big thing that needed to get done, of course, they were like, Riles, get this done. And I was like, Roger, sir, we're on it. And it would get done. Right. So, so you we, go ahead. You were in, so was that still military when you were saying no? Yeah. And so not everybody can do that. Right. Well, there's definitely risk to it. Okay. Right. So in theory, if it's a lawful order and uh, and you refuse, they could, in theory, up to court martial you out of the military. Now, nine times out of ten, if you if you do it when you shouldn't do it and you're making just bad choices and being a bad leader, they do what they call a relief for cause OER. So your OERs are your evaluation reports, and that's your um, anytime you have a change of your raters above, you'll get one, or or every year you'll get one, and um, and so. If they think you're doing a really bad job, they give you a relief for cause OER and they they 
make move you out of that position to some other position and it's basically a career ender so when you get to the point where you're ready for your next promotion you don't get promoted and and they can even chapter you out of the military based on that but sure. if you perform and you're standing up for your soldiers then even though they get mad at you and they yell at you i used to say my butt's bubble gum and uh but my my uh sergeants would tell me that sir your butt's bubble gum again i'm like i know here i go i'm gonna get yelled at <laughs> see you in a few minutes and um and i mean that happened to me from lieutenant all the way through major it was uh just one of those things but i'm like well i must be doing something right because they haven't fired me from any jobs yet um i just get my butt chewed and either i go you know what sir that's right you you're right i'm wrong i'll go do it or but most of the time it was taking care of soldiers it was not allowing stupid things to be done to just jerk them around all over the place and even though i got yelled at for it they they never really did anything beyond that that's awesome so we chatted a little before the show and you you've spent uh you've come through alberta a few times have you yeah so i used to live in fairbanks alaska and uh the very first time we went up we took the ferry uh which i will never do again i do not do boats on big water uh i get seasick and i just hate them but i thought oh it's got stabilizers and it's big so it's not going to be as bad well the alaska bay in february which is when we <laughs> went up uh is pretty choppy uh, I, don't, I think there were like 16 foot seas that, that most of that trip. And uh, so I just took Dramamine, slept and threw up oh. for that whole trip. And uh, so I was like, nope, driving through Canada from now on. And when I would move my firearms, I'd usually fly down in advance with them all packed into Pelican cases. So I didn't have to go through the border with them. And then I just fly back and then drive, drive down. So we made the trip. Uh, you mentioned you were in Edmonton just recently. So we've gone through Edmonton just about every time we go from Edmonton up to what is it? Dawson Creek. And then Dawson Creek splits off to the Alaskan Highway and uh, two lane, very potholed, pockmarked and not well maintained highway. Um, but, you know, if you you drive through that area, it's just absolutely gorgeous. You, if you see a red flag on the side of the road, slow down. That's a big bump. That's what that's telling you. <laughs> it took me a while to learn that. I, I come out here for about a year before I realized those little red markers meant something. Yeah. You hit them and oh. So you were up there in the cold. So how, in all this time, you spent quite a bit of time in the military. Where, where did, where did your love or interest for dogs come from? Your exposure to dogs, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I got back from my first deployment in Afghanistan in 2003. It was actually my second deployment. I was at the Pentagon right after 9-11. Uh, I don't really consider that a deployment because it was in the States, but we left our base and we went to the Pentagon and for seven months we did security because when all the airplane attacks and everything happened on September 11th, um, like three quarters of the security just went, we didn't sign up for this and left and never showed up again. So they brought in four MP companies. Uh, we were one of those. And then we you know, did all the perimeter and interior security and the checkpoints and all that kind of stuff. So we did that. Then I went to um, Afghanistan. I came back from Afghanistan and my now ex-wife, then wife, was like, hey, if you're going to be deployed like this, I get it. This is the army. But um, I want a, a dog. I want a protection dog. So I didn't know anything about protection dogs. This is 2003 when I got into to my first intro to dogs. And uh, I started looking around and everybody was Schutzen, 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 which is like a German kind of a, a sport. It was de originally designed to test military and law enforcement dogs. But since it's just become like a sport that they okay. do primarily. But everybody was like, these dogs are Schutz and three. They're the best dogs there are. You know, so the parents are both Schutz and three. The puppies are going to be great. And all the pups were $3,000. All Schutz and pups were $3,000. And I found this other place up in Canada, actually. And uh, and they were like, you can get our puppies for $1,500. And it's $1,500 to come train with us for a week. I was like, I get a week of training for the same price. Sold. And it just happened to be a massive blessing because they do things very differently than most of the rest of the dog training world. Most of the dog training world is kind of focused around the sports and there's numerous different kinds. Some are a little better than others, but still generally um, they focus on things like they want the dogs to bite and hold in a certain spot. Um, they want the dogs to do what they call a full mouth bite, which is essentially using their molars, which they do produce more power, more force when they do that, but they don't cause the muscular damage, right? Their canines are designed to tear and rip through muscle. Um, and so I understand why a lot of that kind of stuff came into being, but I learned we train dogs that fight human beings right. because we're not training law enforcement dogs and we're not training. If we do train military dogs, it's to fight and kill human beings. And so 
the um, the idea was they use their canines. Their canines puncture the muscle. They rip and thrash and tear through it, and then they hit it again, and they do it again. And if you're fighting with them, they should be switching to the other arm and not allow themselves to be hit or stabbed or punched or, or anything like that. And so I knew I didn't know anything else when I came in. This is just how I was brought up. And then later on, I found out this is how everybody else does everything. And, um, and so I, I feel really blessed there because we're, we have a unique, you know, not completely unique, but there's not very many people in the continent that do the way that we do. And I was blessed to have uh, interacted with them and, and learned from them. And so, so they, they were in Canada that you were nope. learning. They're over in Ontario. Yeah. Okay. Are they still around? Do you know, or they are? Yep. They, there was a, a legal thing that happened, not anything terrible, but they, they made a change to the format of how their company ran and they needed a, a no compete clause to be signed, which many of us were already running our businesses and feeding our families with our businesses by that point. Sure. And so we said, or at least I said, can you guarantee me a certain amount of business every year? And they said, no, but we need you to sign this agreement. And I said, well, I can't in good conscience sign that agreement. I'm taking care of my family with this business. Like, unless you can tell, you know, guarantee me a certain amount of income in order for this non-compete to be in effect, then I can't sign the non-compete. And so we just agreed to, to go our separate ways. But part of it was I'm not allowed to mention them to so supposedly yep. I would be using their name to promote myself. Mm -hmm. So I just, they're, cool. they're just my friends in Canada. Nice. I just, it kind of blew me away that um, I just hadn't heard of the concept of protection dogs, you know, up here north of the border. Right. So that's cool. Yeah. So, so yeah. where'd you go from there? So we, uh, so we, I started training the dogs up there with them. Uh, we really connected some of the stories. Uh, if you've ever listened to protection dog podcast, my podcast that I do every Thursday at 5 PM uh, and it, it goes up on the actual podcast streams a week behind, but at like midnight. So it, it's uh, there first thing in the morning on Thursday. And I, I started where I tell a story from my training up in Canada every time. And we did things. We, we were training in fire and water. Uh, we were literally being shot at as part of our training. Like we would have uh, JTF2. Do you know who those guys are? So they're, no. they're your version of like Delta Force. Okay. All right. So JTF2 guys, they have their own training facility and stuff like that. So they, uh, but a lot of those guys would come and train dogs uh, with us. So I had a lot of interaction with that community through that, that avenue. And, um, and so they would come down and, and they would literally have 22s and they'd be shooting like 10 feet in front of us as we're running back and forth with the dogs and teaching the dogs and us to, to deal with incoming gunfire. Right. But because they wow. were the ones controlling the shots, we could trust that they weren't going to shoot us. And um, and so we did uh, we were we were trapped in places with only like six inches of air between the water and the, the top of the thing with our dogs. And we had to figure out how to get out of it and um, all kinds of fun, crazy stories that we did up there. But. Uh, I don't think they do much of that anymore just because of liability type things. Uh, but it, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was awesome. Uh, we really connected. They were like, come anytime you want, train with us as much as you want. Um, learned so much from those guys have a true appreciation for everything that they did. And, uh, and then they're, they're still doing their thing and we're doing our thing now. So what is a protection dog then? Maybe we'll start there. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of curious because you know, I, I kind of have an understanding of what a um, service dog is. And, right. you know, growing up, lots of people had nasty ass old pit bulls in the backyard. Well, when I was growing up, it was mostly Dobermans, you know, they'd typically be chained to a frigging chain and barely fed and you'd never want to climb their fence. And right. you figured if you ever got close to them, they might tear you to pieces, but you couldn't trust them around animals or people or other dogs. So right. what, what is that? What do, you, what do you do? What makes you different? What makes what you do different? Yeah. So we would refer to those kinds of dogs as something like a guard dog, right? It's, it's job is to kind of create a, uh, a sense of, um, Hey, don't come in here. You're going to get hurt. Um, what for us, what a protection dog is, is it is a dog that is stable. That means it, it doesn't bite unless it's either told to bite by its handler or its handler is physically attacked. Those are the only two times when it's justified for the dog to put its teeth on any other person. And it has to be safe around other dogs. It has to be safe moving in public. It has to be safe around children and, and strangers and all that kind of stuff. And so um, it's a situation where we spend as much time or more time doing the stability side of it, which is we put a bunch of dogs on a table. We have dogs laying on top of dogs. 
Uh, our dogs come out to our public classes and they see all the other dogs that they're not familiar with. They see all the other people. And then depending on the training level, we take them out into public and do various different amounts of training in public with them um, and, and getting them used to that kind of movement and exposure. And so when we look at the dogs in terms of the difference between what we do and what most other people that that call their dogs protection dogs do and not that those dogs wouldn't protect but just in right. terms of differences and what you know kind of our focus is we train our dogs specifically to reverse in bite work and that means if they're on one arm and and i come up with a knife and i go to stab that dog it should not allow me to stab it right it should see my arm coming dodge out of the way and then retarget on the arm that is now the threat to it. And, um, and so we call that reversing. Now, most of your dog training is based in one of the sport techniques. So either KNPV or IPO or Schutzen, um, there's a couple of others, but the, the general idea in almost all of those sports is the dog should go full mouth, meaning using their, their molars and, and bring their whole mouth in they should bite and they should hold in that spot. Okay. And the rationale behind that, which most of the people that do the sports don't know the rationale, but the reason it was created that way is because law enforcement agencies were getting sued for dogs that were causing too much injury when they were being used on people. So the law enforcement agencies needed to minimize the risk of lawsuits. So they said, stop allowing these dogs to just move around and bite people wherever. They need to bite and hold on in one spot create pain, but minimize the injury to that one location. And, um, and so they started training what they call the bite and hold. And um, my, my mentor used to call it the bite and die. And uh, the bark and hold was the bark and die, right? The, you're you're oh, close yeah. to the threat, but you're not able to incorporate yourself into that threat. Now, they, they do different things, and it's not always that way. Um, my mentor was a little skeptical of some of that stuff. But Anytime the dog's not permitted to react to the threat from our per perspective, it places the dog in unnecessary risk. And again, we said at the beginning, right, our dogs are trained to fight human beings. They're not apprehension dogs. And that's really where it comes down to for law enforcement is their dog's primary purpose is apprehension. This guy is running away from us. You're faster than him and he's faster than me. So go catch him for me, create some pain and hold him in place. I'll catch up as soon as I can and I'll put handcuffs on him. And so that's the job of a police dog, right? That and and like a lot of times they do uh, drug detection and occasionally explosive detection. But drugs, they make money. The, the agencies make money finding drugs because there's almost always money in the vehicles associated with the drugs and they get to keep it as they, they get to. Um, Spoils of war. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway, yeah, yeah. I can't think of it right now, but they. Um, Civil forfeiture, right? There yeah. you go. Yeah. And so the, the idea of that dog's purpose being that I understand. Right. And when they use the dog as an apprehension dog, nine times out of 10, that person's already demonstrated that they don't want the fight. They're either running away. Right. So they're saying, I don't want to fight. I'm running away or they're hiding and they're used to detect either in like open fields or big buildings. Like if they run into a warehouse or something like that, the dogs will go in and search for the person. But people that are hiding and people that are running away are much less of a threat than someone who says, I don't care, I'm gonna have the fight anyway. And so the 10 to 20 times a year that police canines are used on people like that, the police canines are always, almost always killed, excuse me, because the person's willing to fight. And even though our dogs are pretty intense, one human that's willing to fight and that has any idea of how to fight versus one dog, and you're just they, they're just left to do whatever happens, the person's probably killing the dog because we're a pinnacle predator they're high up there. now you're going to the er afterwards you may have permanent injuries to your your arms but just one versus one human versus dog and and if the person is a you're truly committed to the fight they're probably winning that fight now that's why we get into two dogs and three dogs and we do and you'll see some of that at self-reliance festival we're doing multiple dog deployments uh where multiple dogs are deploying in together and fighting and, and that totally changes the the whole scenario because you can't focus on two dogs at once um, when they're coming at you from two different directions and things like that. But um, so a lot of these police dogs get killed every year because of this bite and hold. And then the person produces a weapon and either stabs the dog to death or draws a gun and shoots the dog. Um, or in some cases they choke the dog out. If you grab a dog's collar and you twist your hand around, it hurts sure. your hand 
but it will choke the dog out. And, um, and a lot of these dogs won't release even in those situations. And even if they do release, if the person has some control over the dog, they can't get out of the choke once they're in it. And so depending on how much time the person has before the officer gets there, which sometimes is significant, some of these people will send the dogs in um, to like a wood line to find a person and they'll be there for five or 10 minutes sometimes before the officer finally figures out where they are and gets there. So if the dog's not been trained to fight, which I understand why law enforcement agencies do it, but it puts the dog at risk, right? So we want our dogs to be able to handle those threats as best as possible because in a protection situation, you know, typically we as guys think somebody attacks me, I'm going to deploy my dog. I'm going to kick their ass. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I had to use my dog in a fight, 90% of the time, and most of my mentality would be, I'm going into the fight with the dog. Right. But I'm not the only one using a protection dog. Most of our clients are females and many right. of them have children. Right. So if I had my kids with me and some, and like, let's say two or three guys were like, you know, starting to surround us and create a, a situation. If I deployed my dog in that situation, the first thing I'm doing is getting to my vehicle with my kids getting them inside, cranking the vehicle up, backing out. Then I'll roll a window down, call my dog to me, and he can jump in the window and we're driving away, right? I'm not going to sit and fight even one guy with my children right there where if he gets the upper hand, now all my children are at risk, right? right? So, and so you have a female, a lot of times it's the same thing. It's, it's her primary job right now is to get her children to safety. So she deploys her dog and just runs away with the kids and then hopefully she can get her dog back. It doesn't get seriously injured in the amount of time that it takes her to get somewhere. But so we want to give our dogs the highest chance of success in those scenarios. And the highest chance of success from our perspective is be able to fight this human being effectively, be able to counter the fight techniques that they use. So I often kind of joke at people that will see a dog. The person will, will go to strike a dog with a knife, for instance. Right. And we have a training knife. and We're trying to strike the dog with a knife and the dog will jump back. And it's watching the person and the person moves and it darts to this side and the person moves and it darts to this side. And it's waiting for that in that it can get in and, and hit again. And they'll go, oh, man, that dog's weak. It's scared. It won't go in. And I'm like, yeah, because every MMA fight that you've ever seen, they just go bing and they run in and just start beating on each other. Right. As fast as they can. No, that's not how any professional fighter fights. They come in. They you know, will dodge and dart and they'll try and elicit a movement from the other player to, or the other fighter to see how are they going to move? How are they going to react to this so that they can then learn to counter? And then they start engaging with each other. And, um, and, you know, when Mike Tyson ducks out of the way of a punch from Evander Holyfield, they don't go, Oh man, he was a pussy. He should have just taken it on the chin <laughs> and returned another one. Right. It's like, nobody looks at fighting that way anywhere else other than in the dog world. In the dog world, it's the dog should just come in, smash the person, hold on no matter what, and stay there. And I'm like, well, that's impressive in a sport. It's effective for a police dog in most situations. But if a person sees you walking with what appears to be a professionally trained dog, and they decide, I'm going to attack that person anyway, that person is a much higher level of threat than your average person, right? Your average threat is going to look around and go, they have a dog, find another target. Right. right? So if, if you have your dog with you and you're still targeted, the level of threat of that person is much, much higher than most police dogs are deployed on. And so the dog has to be able to deal with that threat and to actually engage that threat. And hopefully there's no guarantees right? There's no guarantees in a fight. Right. You know, people would often kind of, kind of, when I was working with a Navy SEAL buddy, uh, Rich Graham over at Full Spectrum Warrior, awesome guy. You should check him out if you guys want tactical training in Florida. Um, but people would contact us and go, he would have like knife defense courses and things. And, and when they would contact you, you know, their, their general, you could just feel it in the way they would ask the question was, can you teach me how to survive a knife fight and not get cut? And the answer is no. <laughs> if you're in a knife fight, you're probably getting cut. Now, you're going to try not to get cut, but you should expect they just pulled out a knife. Now, I'm probably going to get cut, but I'm going to win anyway. Somebody pulls out a gun. I'm going to pull my gun or deploy my dog or I'm going to fight back in some way, but there's a good chance I'm going to get shot. You know what? I'm going to win anyway. 
You get in a fist fight, you're getting punched or kicked or thrown on the ground. And you go into the fight if you plan to win with that's probably all going to happen to me and I'm going to win anyway. So the idea is there's no guarantees. A, a bad fighter can have a great day and a good fighter can have a terrible day. And any of those things can happen to anybody at any point. But we stack the odds in our favor as best we can. And we stack the odds in the favor of the dog as best we can so that hopefully we come out with minimal damage and the threat is over. And, and then we can deal with the fight after the fight, the legal fight after that. So funny you mentioned that. But I want to throw it here just so everybody knows. Uh, are you good with answering questions toward the end, Joel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. I got three started already for you. We'll save them. We'll get to them at the end. So anybody has them, throw them out in the comments. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, Iridium, this uh, fellow cannot care, good guy. Uh, he says, excellent points. The fur missile is a civilian's exit strategy, not an attack weapon. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah. So we there may be a time in public when we have to deploy our dog, send our dog towards somebody. But I tell my clients this all the time. I say, you win every fight you don't have, right? Every fight you don't have, you won. If you can avoid a fight, if you can get away from a fight, you won that fight every time. Every, yeah. So because there's no guarantees, right? The a good fighter can have a bad day and a bad fighter can have a good day. So we don't want the fight if we can possibly help it. So the only time I have uh, two, two main scenarios I would envision actually deploy, deploying means sending the dog away from you toward a person to, to bite them. Okay. And uh, so the only two places I envision that in public, so not in your home, if somebody's in your home, you would deploy your dog to wherever the person is in your home. But say you're in a parking lot, right? Is somebody's following you. Again, we try to avoid the fight. I, I recommend to my clients, we make two turns. Our second turn should take us back toward the building. And if they make a second turn and are following us back toward the building, now I'm engaging that person. Stop following me. Now, they're, even if they were actually following you, they're probably going to try and disengage at that point. Oh, I'm just trying to get to my car. Then go over there. Get away from me. Right. And but if they decide, you know what, we're in the middle of this parking lot. There's not a lot of people around. It's like dark or it's in a, you know, there's it's secluded enough that even with the yelling, it's not going to draw a lot of attention. I'm still going to come after this person. Stay back or you'll be bit. Do you understand me? And our dogs go on what we call a watch command. So they go to the end of the lead. Sometimes they'll bark. Sometimes they just are like, you freaking come in this lead. I'm going to smash you. And um, and then if the person approaches, because I've already told them, stay back or you're going to get bit. Right now I've, I've used my verbal and I've used a show of force with the dog. If they walk into that circle, they're getting bit. Okay. If they draw a weapon... I'm probably releasing the dog. So that would be the only in, in a like normal public scenario. That'd be one of the only times I would see deploying your dog is you give the verbal warning, you give the physical warning, assuming time and opportunity, right? Like if you turn around a corner and you see somebody draw a gun and point it at you, I'm probably just releasing the dog. Sure. Right? We're just going right to, to fighting mode. But that, you know, that's not a normal situation. A normal situation is somebody's trying to kind of sneak up on you and you at least have the opportunity to engage and it may escalate quickly, but if you're aware of your surroundings, the, the possibility of engaging prior to a conflict is pretty decent. And so that would be one scenario. Another scenario, and this is like kind of the extreme is if they have your child and they are running away from you, if they okay. have your child and they're running away from you, I'm sending my dog and my dog is going to catch them and rip them up. And then I'm going to catch up to them. I'm probably going to stomp their skull and then I'm going to take my child home. So in, in public settings, those are really your, your, your most likely, right? There's, we could always sure. come up with weird, crazy scenario. But so it's not an attack weapon. It's a defensive weapon. It's a don't come any closer or you'll be bit type of thing. And the nice thing is a lot of people in Canada, you guys have a lot of limitations on your ability to have firearms and, and other ways to defend you. So having the ability to have a canine that can do that kind of stuff is a huge benefit. And hopefully they won't catch on and start limiting your ability to have that. But um, I also recommend to my clients, don't advertise that you have a protection dog. Like right. don't walk around telling everybody, this is a protection dog. Um, you know, if, if you move with your dog at all, it, you know, do it smart. If you have a legitimate need or a legitimate um, case for a service dog, then your protection dog can also be your service dog, assuming that it's truly stable 
and it's not a threat to anybody that you're moving around with. And I, I move with my dogs all the time. I take them out with me in public everywhere I go. And every dog that travels with me is a protection dog. But how many times have I had anybody bite or any of my dogs bite somebody? Zero times because they, you know, we do the training beforehand, right? And Chris Oh yeah, just what? Yeah, he's an Albertan. There, he said limitations, massive understatement about about. Uh, oh, I know, but that's cool. I this is I love this. Yeah, it's great, man. Yeah, so that's the the main difference in terms of what I consider a protection dog and kind of what we do. And, and I'm not the only one that does this, but there's only maybe about six or eight of us in the country, and only two or three that I still keep in in any kind of close contact with. So. As you got talking about this, a question that kind of come up a little earlier as I was thinking. Now, of course, anytime you're in, I mean, so first off, could, could that protection dog be considered a deadly weapon? It probably or, could be considered that. I think the best way to classify a protection dog is a, is less than lethal. And that's right. how we kind of describe it in, uh, or less lethal. Uh, and that's how they kind of describe even tasers and things like that in the U.S. now. Yep. Even a taser or a, a plastic shotgun round or rubber bullets can still sometimes kill people. So they refer to them as less lethal. They're probably not going to kill somebody. Um, if you work multiple dogs, like let's say you have three dogs sure. and three trained protection dogs, and somebody comes onto your property and you, your dogs, you're not there to call those three dogs off, they will yep. probably kill that person. There's like a 90% chance that person's going to die. Um, and if you, and we'll do a three dog deployment at Self-Reliance Festival. We'll film it. You can see it. Um, fighting. So I actually have a podcast called One Dog is Protection, Two Dogs Are an Army, Three Dogs Are Unstoppable. And uh, you start doing three plus dogs. The most dogs I've ever had biting me at one time were 12. And, uh, wow. and literally at that point, all you're doing is trying to stay on your feet. There's nothing you can do but just stay on your feet. And you've got dogs on your legs pulling your legs, trying to take you to the ground. And, uh, and when you deploy three dogs, even when you deploy two dogs, very frequently, one of them will start biting calves and they just do it naturally. They, they could have never been a leg biter before, but you deploy them with another dog and they kind of look and go, Oh, you got arms. All right, cool. I'm going to find something else. And they kind of will circle around <laughs> once or twice. And then all of a sudden they go, bam, right on the back of your, like your Achilles tendon. And they just start yanking right now. When you're wearing a bite suit, you plant that foot on the ground and you let them yank because you got a bite suit on. But when you right. have no protection and they grab your Achilles tendon and start yanking, you're giving that leg to that dog. And when you give that leg to that dog and you've got another dog pulling you another direction on one leg, their chances that you go to ground are really high. And I posted a video just recently on my Instagram and TikTok um, with we had a new guy come and start learning how to be a canine par sparring partner with us. That's what we call them. Most people call them decoys because they don't do anything. They just stand there and get bit. And, um, but we're like, no, we're not decoys. We're canine sparring partners. We're teaching our dogs to fight. We, we spar together. So he came, he's learning and very first day, very first deployment. He's like, I want to do those two dogs together, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, cool. Number one rule. Always remember this. Don't go to ground. Stay on your feet. No matter what happens. We deploy these two dogs three seconds in he's on the ground. And thankfully, we have good control over our dogs. Out, let's go. They immediately, one of my dogs, literally, this is his head. One of my dogs literally was like this. Boop, and I said, out. And he went, oh, man, and kind of came back to me. And he like, he's like, I felt it. He was right there. And I'm like, yeah, I saw his canines right there when I said out. And he went, oh, and came back to me. So they take you to ground, and they start targeting neck and head. And so the only time we go to ground with our dogs is when our dogs are wearing muzzles, because now they have the protection. Right. Sure. I can take the protection off. I don't wear a suit. Now they're not seeing a suit to, to target on and they're seeing a human and then they're having to fight that human with the muzzle. But I hope that answered the uh, that question there. Mike from Snail Creek <laughs> asked if Tim could wear the dog suit at self-reliance. I don't think I have any training for that. You know, the problem I run into is I'm only five, nine, but 180. Right. So I keep having these guys that come and train with me that are like six foot tall. And I'm like, I don't have any bite suits that fit you. That's exactly, I was going to say, and, I bet you don't. <laughs> and so like my, I have one dude training with me right now. He's a really cool guy, Cisco. And uh, he's like six foot tall, maybe six one. He's right in that range, but he, he's thin. So he can, he can put my suits on, but I literally had to buy him hand gauntlets, which are these leather cover because his hands stick out of the sleeves. 
And if your hands are, my dogs bite hands. Like that's one of the things they target. And that's one of the things that I find funny that people will say, oh, those dogs are biting hands. They're weak. They have weak nerves. I'm like, where's the last place you want to get bit? Oh, yeah. Like maybe you say my face, but the next one before that is, I don't want to get bit here. What's the threat of a human? If you take these away, right. there. What what can you do to me if I've taken these away from you? You, you can't no padding. You There's can't no... hold a weapon. Yeah. You can't do anything to me if your hands are 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 destroyed by a dog biting them, right? And so, but his hands are sticking out. So I have these gauntlets on, right? I give him these gauntlets to wear. And um, but there's this little, if he's not careful, a little gap at his his wrist will start to open up. Right. And so I'm always watching and, and, and my dogs, like most of my suits are either tan or Brown or something like that. So these black leather gauntlets at the end look like they've got something in their hands. So my dogs target them specifically and they're hitting them and I'm watching. And as soon as that, that sleeve slips back a little bit, I'm like, out, let's go. And uh, just to make sure he stays safe. Right. Like he's gotten pretty good at figuring it out and keeping his hands there. And I just recently got a jacket that has black sleeves. So it kind of blends together. And when amazingly, they, they bite much more naturally on him and don't specifically target his hands because it all blends together as one thing. It doesn't like stand out that at the end of his hand is this weird thing that the dogs aren't used to. So I'm sure this is a state to state thing, but you had mentioned liability earlier and that was top of mind for me. So a yep. couple things here. I mean, number one, you know, if it's you know a little old lady or somebody who has, has your dog and mm -hmm. I, I assume you've had people call you after the fact, that where they've been protected by your dogs at this point? So I've had a lot of people contact me where dogs have kept a situation from happening. Mm. My wife and kids were traveling and this weird, crazy guy approached my wife and she pulled the dog out and he immediately turned and left. Right. Nice. I, get, I get a lot of those. Um, our dogs apparently are such a deterrent that no one has ever had to actually use them. Sweet. And, um, and so like, it would be really cool to say, yeah, man, my dog tore this person up and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I'm like the, we have sold over in about 12 to 14 years. I've sold about 160 to 180 trained dogs wow. and I've had zero people need to use them. And most of that is because the dog is such a deterrent. And when you walk in public with a dog that's pulling at the end of the lead, like you go to pet stupid, right? Pet smart. And you're, you're walking in there and you bring your dog there and nine, 90% of the people walking in there are getting dragged down the rows by their dogs, or at least the dog's just roaming at the end of the lead, right? It's just doing its own thing, blah, blah, blah. You see that person in public, you're not thinking that's a trained dog. I'm not going to mess with that person. You're right. thinking that's a stupid dog. It might bark at me, but it's probably just going to run away if, if I yell at it and I can do whatever I want to that person. When you get a dog that moves like our dogs move at your side, keeping an eye on the environment, looking at threats, alerting on them for you and, and telling you there's a threat there. And you go, I see it, leave it alone. And you're, you become more aware of your surroundings and people just look at you and go, I don't want to mess with that person. Huh. And now you can, you can do that with a highly obedience trained dog, but I always go, is it worth it to you to carry a gun with no ammunition? If I carry a gun and I pull it and draw that gun and point it at somebody and they go, you're not going to fucking shoot me. And they start right. walking forward. And all I can do is go click. Is that a situation I want to be in? Or nine times out of 10, I go, nope. And nobody should think that way. Right. They should think if I carry a gun, it needs to be loaded. And so that's why we do what we do with the dogs. So what about liability? Do you think yeah. is, um, you know, cause obviously like after incident with, firearms and that sort of thing obviously there's yep. an, a liability there have you looked into it at all or is there what do you yeah, think so so i say number one if you defend yourself with anything you're probably or there's a good chance you're going to have a legal fight afterwards sure you know, especially if you win the fight right if you win the fight and let's say you break you know bubba's arm who is attacking you his family's always going to say he was a good boy and he wasn't trying to hurt anybody and this mean person broke his arm <laughs> right there's always going to be some sob story blah 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 um, because the people that do that kind of stuff are dirtbags and mm. their families are probably dirtbags too 
And that's the kind of things that dirtbags do is they want to blame everybody else when they create a problem and especially when it doesn't go well for them. Right. So you have to prepare yourself that if you ever have to defend yourself at all, there's going to be a fight after the fight, the legal fight. So we want to do a couple of things. We want to set ourselves up for success as much as we can on the front end. And then we just acknowledge that something is probably or at least likely may happen on the back end. And then there's a few things we can do about that, too. So on the front end is, you know, I was, I was in the army, but I was also a, a sheriff's deputy for six years. Uh, that was one of the things I tried to do in the bureaucracy. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this crap. And I left. But we can we can talk about law enforcement on a, at another time. So um, one of the things they taught us going through the police academy was whenever you're arresting someone, you no matter what they're doing, you always say over and over again very loudly, stop resisting, stop resisting. And they actually went into why are we teaching you to tell to say out loud loudly, stop resisting. The reason we say that to you is because there will be people around and most of them won't see what's actually happening. But you know what they think was happening? Yep. He was resisting. You know what they will tell under oath what was happening? They will say, well, they kept saying stop resisting, but he just kept resisting. Why do they say that? Because you planted that in their mind that that's what was happening. They only heard it. They didn't see it. But they will testify to it. So when we deploy our dogs, the first thing I tell my clients to start saying is, stop fighting the dog and I'll call them off. Stop fighting the dog and I'll call them off. Now, if the person's <laughs> fighting, the dog keeps fighting, right? If the person stops fighting, we immediately call our dogs off. And so th those are the things you can do in advance, right? I want a dog that recalls quickly. I don't want a dog that, I'm, that the person goes, okay, okay, I give up, I give up. And the dog just keeps thrashing them. And you see a lot of these police videos where that happens, right? The police officer comes in and he's trying to get the dog off the person. The dog's just ripping the person up because he won't release. I'm like, to me, that's 100% unacceptable. Sure. Um, you call a dog out, the dog releases, and it comes to you. Now, sometimes, you, you know, dogs have a lot of the same um, stress reactors that we have. So they get auditory exclusion. They get tunnel vision, depending on how often they've been in the fight scenarios and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes you go, out. Fooey it out. Let's go. And that second fooey it out, they're like, oh, sorry, boss. And they come right back in. Right. But you're talking about a quarter of a second delay between the out and the, the fooey that out. Let's go. And my dog comes back to me. So on the front end, I want my dog to release as soon as I say. And truly in my heart, I want the dog to cause as little damage as possible to get the desired result, which is the threat ends. If, if you carry a gun and your mentality is, if somebody threatens me, I'm going to kill them. You probably have some mental problems. And there right. are a lot of people carrying guns that have mental problems, which is a lot of what the liberals use to try and limit people's ability to have guns. Because a lot of people that carry them, that, that's what they think. They think, somebody steals my TV and runs down the road, I'm shooting them. Well, you're a murderer then. Because sure the TV is not worth a person's life. Now, if they're carrying a TV, you know what I can do? I can probably run faster than they can carrying my <laughs> and they, I'm totally good with running up behind them and pushing them from behind while they're carrying my TV and they fall on the ground. Now, if they get up and fight, then it's a different story. But if they're just running away with my TV, I'm not going to shoot them in the back. If they're running away with your child and you knew 100% that you could shoot them without harming your child, which is where a dog would be great, then maybe, right? But we don't just, the, the mentality should never be, if somebody does something bad to me, I'm going to kill them. That the people that think that way either have not thought about it very much or truly have a mental disorder. So we truly do want our dogs to cause the least amount of damage to get the desired result. And that means as soon as they start creating pain, if that person is like, I give up, I give up, I give up, out, let's go. Get on the ground, face away from me. Put your hands out to your sides, palms up where I can see what's in your hands. Cross your legs. Now they have to do multiple things to be able to get back up. Right. right. If you move again, you will be bit. Do you understand me? Call 911. So now I've taken control of the situation, but I cause minimal damage to the person. And so if he goes into a court and says, this crazy dog attacked me. Well, now I have all these witnesses that will say, well, he kept fighting the dog. Why do they say that? Because I said, stop fighting the dog and I'll call him off. And the minute 
he actually stopped fighting. My dog's outed and came back to me. And so we have all the pre-stuff where we set ourselves up for success as much as possible. Again, we're also doing the avoiding the fight if possible because we win every fight we don't have, right? But assuming that it gets to the point where there's an actual fight. And then on the backside, my recommendation to people is this. Sign up with somebody like U.S. Law Shield. So U.S. Law Shield is a group you can sign up for. It's like $120 a year. And I think you can add your spouse for like 30 bucks. So for like 150 bucks a year, you get an insurance, a legal insurance policy that says if you have to defend yourself with anything, and we and they were at uh, prepper camp last year when we were there, oh. we specifically asked them, if someone uses a dog to defend themselves, will you support? Will you represent them in court under your program? They're like, we will represent you in court if you use a toaster, a frying pan, a knife, a dog. We don't care what you had to use. We just care that you had to defend yourself in a violent situation and now you're being sued. We will represent you. So it's not a guarantee, but now the up to 15 or $20,000 of expense that you may have had to deal with to defend yourself after defending yourself, you know, you were attacked by somebody else. Now, at least that expense is deferred. It's covered by this 120 to $150 a year uh, insurance policy with us law shield. And I'm sure there's a few others out there. They're just the one I'm, I'm familiar with. I don't have any association or affiliation with them. I just know that they exist. And I think it's a good idea for people to, um, to have something like that, whether you have a dog or not, if you think that you may ever have to defend yourself, that is an amazing insurance policy to have to cover yourself. And they even have things that they're little add-ons are like 10, $10 and $20 add-ons each year. But they have ones for like, if your kid is bullied in school and has to defend themselves against a bully, they'll come and defend you at the school board meeting. Oh, wow. Sort of thing. So they have a lot of different options in there. It's, it's really something I'd encourage people to look into. Um, and I plan to sign my family up for it uh, pretty shortly. That's cool. So, yeah. So re well, preventative, I, first off, like you said, I mean, yes. most, most threats are eliminated before anything with a properly trained dog. It sounds like, and then yes. you, you mentioned uh, re- reasonable force, enough force to de-escalate or stop the situation, hey? Right. And, and, then- and so if you follow our our proceedings that we teach people, so first we make our turns, if, assuming time and opportunity, right? You're not ambushed and attacked immediately. Someone's right. following you. It's a dark parking lot. There's nobody else around. You feel uncomfortable. I turn between cars. Now, people do, especially if they're on a phone or something and they see you turn and they, they look up and go, oh, my car is over there. If, if their car is in the direction that you turn, they will have a tendency to, to turn down the same set of cars that you did. We have this tendency to follow each other. And uh, that's why I go, if they follow me through the cars, I make a second turn, but now I'm heading back toward the building. Because if they follow me back toward the building, that's really suspicious, right? Hmm. And um, if, if they come out and go the other way or go straight across to another lane, they're looking for their car. But if they turn and follow me, at the very least, I have a pretty good justification to verbally engage that person. Stop following me. Then if you come any closer, you will be bit. Do you understand? Dogs on watch. If they approach you, now I gave verbal warning. I gave a show of force. I did everything I could to make sure that this person didn't get hurt and they continued to approach in a threatening manner. And then, of course, if they draw a weapon, I did everything I could up until the moment that they drew a weapon and then I, I was forced to release my dog because they presented deadly force to me. And even then, I had the justification of drawing a gun, depending on where you live and if you did have that justification. I had the, just, the possibility of drawing a gun and shooting them. And I didn't do it because I truly don't want to harm a person if I can help it. And so if you, if you follow that kind of approach in the beginning with something like U.S. Law Shield on the end – that's your, your best bet, right? Uh, I know you're familiar with Jack and a lot of times Jack talks about, you know, how he would solve problems and people always want to come up with uh, well, there's this possible thing. He's like, well, that possible thing is here now. So you can't use a possible problem that could exist that already exists to justify not doing a thing. And so if you use a gun, you're probably getting sued. If you use a knife to defend yourself, you're probably getting sued. If you're big and strong and you break a guy's arm defending yourself, you're probably getting sued. Well, if you have a dog and that's also the case, that's the case if you defend yourself at all. True. So the to me, as long the where the possible um where the possible issue comes up with liability is if you have an unstable dog. You have a dog that bites somebody when they should not have bitten. 
And right. so that's why we put such an emphasis on the stability of the dog, being able to be around people and other dogs and all this kind of stuff and not be aggressive unless I tell you to be aggressive or I'm physically attacked. Those are the only two times you're allowed to break obedience. Or, well, one is obedience. I sent you to deploy. But if somebody attacks me, that's the only time you can break obedience and defend me because then I'm physically being attacked. And if your dog is truly stable, then it's not that there's zero risk of liability, but there's substantially less risk of liability. But when you, if you carry concealed, you have a substantially higher liability than if you don't carry a gun at all, right? right? If somebody gets a hold of your gun and uses it on somebody else, that's a lot of liability on you. It, to me, that's way more liability than moving in public with a 99.9999% safe dog. Hmm. So here's something I'm just say, say you were concealed carried, but you also had your dog with you and you yep. deployed your dog instead of your concealed carry. That might actually be a point in your favor if you did go to court, considering at that point, it, it might be considered less, less than lethal, even if... I would think so. The thing that you have to always remember in court is you have a jury of your peers and Mm. they're all stupid. (laughs) True. And so emotions are easy to manipulate. And so there's just like in any other fight, there's never a guarantee. We just stack the odds in our favor as best we can. I do think it would be a benefit um, to be able to say I had this ability and I did not use it. I used a less dangerous capability to defend myself. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, you always have to um, convince, you know, 12 or six or 12 people that you were right and the other person was wrong. So again, being able to produce a, a minimal damage hmm. to get the desired result would also go a long way in that situation um, where the person, you know, says, okay, okay, get him off, get him off. And, your dog actually outs and comes back to you in a very quick time frame um, and minimizes that damage. And the person's not like, you know, maimed for life. Now, if the person continues to fight, well, then they continue to fight. Right. And, and they have to deal with the consequences of that. That's why in, as a general rule, my policy is I'm joining the fight with my dog. Oh, okay. It's, it's part of it is I don't want my dog to fight alone, but part of it is too, me and my dog together can end the fight a lot faster than just my dog by themselves. Sure. My dog engages somebody. They, they typically hit one or the other arm. And unless the person presents a weapon or starts hitting the dog, they're probably not reversing. Well, if I go in with my dog, whichever arm the dog gets, cause they're getting there first. Mm-hmm. I focus on the other arm. I immobilize that arm. Now he can't use that arm to fight my dog. And then I can use that arm to drive him to the ground. Out, plutz. Do not move or you'll be bit. Do you understand? And I can end the fight a lot faster than if I'm just standing there yelling at the person. Because that person, I have to understand as as the person dealing with the situation that if I deploy a dog on somebody, that person is probably going to their their peak stress threshold. They are Mm -hmm. shutting down in terms of, They're experiencing all of the cognitive and physiological stress uh, factors. They're getting tunnel vision. They're getting auditory exclusion. They're getting probably uh, fast motion time, which is the worst thing that can happen in a fight. So basically you just, you don't know what to do. And in your mind, it all just happens so fast. I don't know what happened. And um, as opposed to slow motion time, which is someone who's been trained to deal with stress. And for them, time actually slows down Hmm. and they can see things and adjust and and, uh, react and what seems like superhuman speed because their brain is slowed time down for them and they're able to process faster. But so this person is probably going through all of these things. And so when I'm saying stop fighting the dog and I'll call them off, there's a very good possibility. They don't hear me at all. Fair enough. And so it's better for them. If I can go into the fight with my dog and gain control of that person and put them in a non-threatening situation, like laying down on the ground, face down, call my dog off. Now I've helped them. They may not think so right at this second, 